Welcome to Dispatch in Depth, where we give you the stories behind the science of emergency dispatch. This is an official podcast of the International Academies of Emergency Dispatch, the world's leading authority in dispatch science. I'm your host, Becca Barris, writer and copy editor for the Journal of Emergency Dispatch. In each episode, we'll be bringing you stories of the fascinating people who work in this area. We'll give you their backstory, including how they got there, what they're working on, and what drew them to the field. These are people who represent the cutting edge in emergency dispatch, and I hope you'll join us to hear more about them. Welcome to Dispatch in Depth. This is the first in a two-part series about the IED's Instructor Academy. In this one, we'll handle the academy side of things, how it works, who's eligible, and the kind of effort required to become a full-fledged instructor. In the next one, we'll be talking to several people who recently took the course to hear about their individual experiences. Today's guest is Eric Fayed, the Associate Director of Instructor Services, a role he's held for two years now. Eric has 17 years of experience as a firefighter and paramedic in Florida, the last few years of which he spent in the comm center as a line dispatcher, supervisor, CTO, and Q. In 2012, he became an EMD instructor and then an EFD instructor in 2015. He was also named Instructor of the Year at Navigator 2021 in Las Vegas. Welcome, Eric. Thank you, Becca. Thanks for having me on today. I'm excited to have you. I can't believe you've been with the Academy for two years and I haven't had you on the podcast. Like that's that's a real failing on my part. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're here now, so we're going to make it count. Yes. Yes, we are. So, Eric, how did you get into emergency response as a career? I started pretty young. I was lucky. I had a lot of friends coming out of high school who had no idea what they wanted to do. And I have been chasing ambulances and fire trucks since I was three years old, as I'm told. So I was destined for this. I actually started an explorer program in high school. So I had a great opportunity to do some training, to do a lot of ride alongs in those years and and just see that that is something that I actually wanted to get into. The excitement of it all, that was a lot of fun, but you know, there's a lot of, a lot of periods that aren't so exciting and you know, it, it's just something that I loved. I was passionate about from a young age. I liked helping people. I liked the adrenaline rush. It was a career that was appealing to me. And that's what got me started was those Explorer days in high school, really, that kind of pushed me that direction. So I, the nice thing was I left high school and I, I jumped right in feet first. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I was very fortunate in that case. And, you know, I became an EMT at 18 years old and I was a paramedic just after my 21st birthday, so. That's pretty impressive. How soon did you get into being a firefighter? Yeah, I actually worked for our county EMS agency initially. I actually started off washing ambulances by hand and restocking them while I was going to EMT school. And I became an EMT. I went into our dispatch center really by happenstance. I I just, it was just kind of something like, eh, I guess I'll do it since they're closing the station that I wanted to work at. I didn't realize I would love it. I thought it was just a gap filler in time until I had another station to bid on. But I did like it and I stayed in there until 2005. And I was a supervisor when I went part time with the comm center and I moved to the fire department in 2005 with one of our local cities as a firefighter paramedic. I never left the comm center until 2017, though. The nice thing was the comm center was county. I went to a city fire department. 
So I had the opportunity to stay on part-time in our dispatch center and I was pretty invested even as a part-time employee. So they let me get involved and do a lot of different things within communications. Yeah. And one of those things was becoming an instructor, which is fairly time consuming. I mean, maybe not time consuming. It's an investment, right? It's an investment of time and effort. Yeah, it was. And that was another thing that just, I kind of got nudged into that direction and it wasn't really a plan. One thing that I knew early on was I was definitely afraid of getting in front of people though. So I became a CPR instructor at a young age just because I've always been one of those people, something I'm afraid of, I need to immerse myself in it. So I got comfortable getting up in front of those small groups and CPR classes, but working as an instructor for the academy, you know, at first I was like, eh, I'll just, I'll do it. Sure, why not? Just let me add another thing to my resume. But I love the dispatch world, and so why wouldn't I love teaching about it? Came out to Salt Lake City to do my own, my instructor academy, and this is when we were in the previous building, but it was scary. There were a lot of names that I only ever heard of, never seen, but everyone was very welcoming. And I realized then like, this is serious and you can touch a lot of people by being an emergency dispatch instructor. So it was, it was the start of of something really incredible that, you know, continues to today. I mean, even in my position now, I still do my minimum of at least two classes a year. That's really cool. I didn't realize you were still teaching. Do you teach instructors? I do teach instructors. So to teach an instructor in an instructor academy or even in an instructor recertification workshop, you do have to be a member of that discipline's curriculum board. Yeah. But it is also a requirement as an instructor that you have to teach two classes a year. The idea of that is so that every time you get in front of the classroom, it's not like your first time again. And I follow my own rules. So I teach two classes a year in medical and two classes a year in fire. I'm real big on lead by example. I am not going to give myself a waiver or a pass to not do that. So I do it. I do my two classes a year, at least my two classes a year. I usually wait till party dispatch has a shortage and needs some help, or I have an instructor that needs a team teach and we cannot find a mentor to go and work with them. I'll try to save it for those. But you know, as the year winds down, I get my two in. Last year, I was doing them in December. This year, I'm done already. Yeah. So that's nice. Way to go. So you've already touched on a lot of aspects of the Instructor Academy. Let's back up a little bit. What is it? Why is it important? You know, the Instructor Academy does a lot of things. It's incredibly important because it gives the instructor the foundation that they will need to go out there and teach, whether that's at their own agency or whether that's in front of a lot of lot of other agencies or people that they don't know. For one, it introduces them. If you're in the dispatch world, you know who the IAED is, but you may not know a lot of the the back end of it. So coming out to Salt Lake City gives them, lets them see the back end, like what we're all about, how big this is, you know, that we have whole floors dedicated just to translations or, you know, all the different pieces that they get to see when they come out to us. They get to spend some quality time with, it's usually the curriculum board chair for that discipline. If it's not that person, it's one of the curriculum board members. But people that, you know, they're not just experts in that particular discipline, but they're experts in teaching. They've done a lot of it and they really, really can get down into the nitty gritty, the details, how to deliver this course, the best ways to deliver this course. Not only that, we also pair them up with members of our curriculum and instructional design team. These guys are the experts. 
on the best ways to train adults right now. So we rely on their expertise and the best techniques, the best methods. You know, they're the ones building these courses for the curriculum boards, for the academy, for priority dispatch. So I think that that's really important. They get a lot of opportunity to network with other up and coming instructors. I think they find it neat. This last instructor academy we did, we had people from three different continents. We had a student from Australia. We had a student from the United Kingdom. We had students from Canada and we had students from the United States. So it was quite, quite the melting pot of people. So again, they get to see, oh my gosh, all across the world, we're all doing the same thing. And we will be talking to the student from Australia and the student from the UK. So stay tuned. What are prerequisites for taking the class, Eric? So there are some prerequisites and I have to be honest, it is, it's not hard to find instructors, but we don't have lots of instructors coming through the door at all times because we are very particular about what we're looking for. Really the biggest thing that we look for is having the operational background of that discipline. So if it's medical, we're looking for usually a paramedic, a physician, a registered nurse, physician's assistant, advanced practice nurse. We're looking for something like that. We need somebody to have the background. We also try really hard to find somebody that has that and has sat at the console. So they have seen both sides. I have found that the medical arena is much easier to find those people who have done both sides. Fire is a little bit harder and police is the hardest to find. We don't always get people that have sat at the console, which is not the most ideal situation because it takes a lot more work to get them up to speed. But we need somebody that at least has operational knowledge of how their dispatch center works, where they're coming from. So we look for the operational background. We look for hopefully communication center background. And then we look for somebody that, again, preferable that they have done classroom instruction before. But if they haven't done that, that they've, they've at least been in a mentor or a preceptor or a trainer role so that they have, they at least have a little bit of experience. We don't always get it uh, exactly how we want it, but, but we, we will get them to where they need to go. It's just the less they have, the more work we have to do to get them there, which we do. Right. And we will talk to people in this next episode who have lots of different backgrounds. So if you're listening to this and be like, oh, I would really like to be an instructor, the Academy is really responsive and they'll let you know. They'll be like, oh, if you could work on this, that would be great. Or we can help you with this. But what people need to realize is there's other types of instructorships that we have here. You know, yeah, there's medical police, fire, the main disciplines, but there's emergency telecommunicator instructors. Yes. There's emergency dispatch QA instructors. You know, there's software instructors. There's all types of different instructorships and not all require that operational background. They just may need to be a little bit flexible in what they may dabble in. The other thing, though, too, that can be a little bit of a hurdle sometimes is for medical and fire, they must come from an ACE. Police, that requirement is not in place currently because there really aren't enough ACEs to require it. I think if there ever are, it would probably be synonymous across the board for all three disciplines. And this is another one that sometimes people don't necessarily appreciate. We do when they come to the Instructor Academy. The students do when they go out there and teach because what it really does is we know the instructor came from a system or a communication center that they didn't just say, oh, yeah, we do everything the right way. They showed us and we gave them that gold stamp of approval. Like, yeah, you say you do it right. 
you do. You actually do do it the right way. So we want our instructors to have that that background too, where they've either done it themselves or they've been in a system where they are they don't just say it, but they are actually doing it the right way. Right. It just makes teaching those principles that much simpler. Like you don't have to think about it and be like, okay, well, I do it this way, but it should be done this way. You're ready to go. You're like, this is how it's supposed to be done. This is how I've been doing it. Bing, bing, boom. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the structure of the Instructor Academy. It's a week class, four days. Yes, it's five days for medical. It's four days for police and fire and nurse triage. Can't forget about our nurse triage program. I always like to make sure people understand, though, that these instructors or these instructor candidates, they have done a lot of work to step foot in the door in Salt Lake City. And people don't always realize that. It is a very arduous process. It is a long process from the the day you submit an application to the day you step foot in Salt Lake City. The Instructor Academy class is what you sit in Salt Lake City for, but I always say there's three phases to an Instructor Academy process. And the first phase is that whole application period, getting those approved. I have to submit them to the Board of Certification for approval. They also have to sign some legal documents that, you know, they're not going to go sell our stuff or try to duplicate it because most of our instructors, they know stuff before the general public a lot of times because we have to train them on what's coming down the pike. So they get to see a lot of that stuff ahead of time and we need to make sure that that stuff does stay confidential. There's a couple other things that they have to do and eventually they make it into Salt Lake City. I think that week is transformative. That's me though. It was for me going to instructor academies personally and I would hope that everyone feels the same. We want it to be an experience and not just uh, just another class. We want to try to empower them with every tool known that they could use during their courses, but not just the tools, also all the resources that they have access to. I mean, the Academy is a big family. And anybody that knows people or has contacts or has resources knows that as long as you call somebody, we'll get you the answer or we'll get you to the right person. You know, the Academy's very good at that. That's one of the biggest advantages for an agency of having an instructor. You've got an in. And when they call, somebody picks up the phone. You know what I mean? I think that's really important. But anyway, that whole instructor academy process in Salt Lake City, the actual class, that's where they just learn the nuts and bolts of it all. They do practice teaching. They do breakouts. They will interact in their cohorts, medical, fire, police, but then they do a lot of time together also. We try to get them all in the same hotel. There's a lot of networking. I think it's an incredible week. And I can't wait to hear the podcast that you're going to follow up and talk to them because I'll be like, They better be careful what they say. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. The last phase, though, is they leave the Instructor Academy class. They've still got six months to a year of work to do before they're certified because we will be pairing them up with senior and or master instructors. They must do a minimum of two team teaches. We try to get it to where they are observed in mentor teaching pieces of the class. They also get to observe a senior or master instructor teach it in real time and see how it flows. When they sit there in the five days or the four days, we're going through it really slow. We're picking it all apart. You don't really don't get a feel for the actual flow. So they do that afterwards. Sometimes they do more than two team teaches. That's the bare minimum. Somebody does it perfect both times, they'll move into a final evaluation and be signed off. I tell them, we want you guys to be comfortable. If you want to do more than two, you can do more than two. 
we may suggest you do more than two. More often, it's the student saying, I'm not that comfortable yet. Can I do another one? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. After four or five, six, I'm going, okay, I just need to warn you that you're not going to be fully comfortable by the time you do this on your own. So there will come a point where I'm like, okay, you're passing every single one. I know you want to be comfortable, but it takes, that takes a couple of years, you know, we got to get you cleared. So that's the last phase, getting through those team teachers, getting through a final evaluation before they would be in front of that classroom completely on their own. It's a process. It's an investment. I think it's impressive that people are willing to commit to that because it's not for somebody that just wants to come in and just do the minimum. It's not going to work in this process. And we weed a lot of people out that way. And like we talked about before, in order to stay certified as an instructor, you have to teach at least two courses a year for each discipline. So like you, Eric, you are medical and fire. You have to do four total to fire to medical. It would be the same if you were certified in police as well as the other two, which would be insane. People ask me, don't you want to just become an instructor and everything? And I'm going, no. I'm not good at everything for one. And for two, I don't want, that just adds to the number of classes I have to squeeze in in a year. And that's, that's the thing you teach, you teach what you're passionate about. You teach what you're good at. Yes. You know, this is the stuff that matters. Yeah, absolutely. And so you came to the Academy in 2021, I want to say, and that was the height of a lot of remote trainings, right? So the Academy pivoted to remote courses in order to be able to keep up this process of learning, this process of growth. And I imagine that there are a lot more in-person trainings now than there were when you first started here. What else has changed in the past two years, do you think? You know, that's probably the biggest change is the conversion to remotes. And to be honest, we, we keep getting better at it. The platform changed drastically. I will tell you, it was painful in the beginning. You know, I was one of the first remote instructors and it was painful because the platform that we use, it wasn't that user-friendly. And luckily the Academy and PDC and the, the people that are in the positions to kind of push them to improve the platform did that. And, you know, we started using that platform, what, March, April of 2020. Well, by December of 2021, right after I started, they were like, we have to retrain everybody because the platform they're doing an update but it's not an update it looks completely different how you do everything changes and i was like oh no <laughs> welcome eric it was a good change because they really did listen and implement a lot of the stuff that we were looking for i almost don't need to train people on it at this point there's some things we go over instructors have to realize you know when when all they see is this little cutout of my face it's like watching the news, you know, you might laugh because their head goes this way and that way and the facial expressions they make. But like when you teach remote, you have to do all of that because I have to keep you engaged on this, just my face. And I don't want to watch myself for four hours. So we have to figure that out. Instructors have to be more exciting. They have to be more interactive. And we try to be interactive in the classroom, but you've got to find a way to do it on remote to keep people engaged. And you can see. All of our instructors are good, but some are better at engaging people on the remote platform than others. And you can see that there is a big difference. Absolutely. Besides that, though, we really lost our, I call it the pipeline. You know, that Instructor Academy process is a long one. It's our pipeline. And you always have people somewhere in that pipeline in flux. But the problem during COVID was the pipeline emptied. So... That has been my biggest challenge. And it, like I said, we're very specific. I can't just go out there and put a sign up instructors want it. I mean, I can, but then I have to say no to a lot of people. 
it's so specific. And I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I don't want to draw a bunch of people in just to tell them no. I try to focus on the aces when they become ace or when they re-ace, I try to like have not just send them an email, but send them an email and try to get a face-to-face or at least remote face-to-face conversation so we can talk about it. Not all agencies realize the benefits. I was an in-house instructor for years at my agency, even after I was regional. And there's a lot of benefits to having that expert, that attachment to the academy right in-house. My biggest thing is attracting those ACEs to put instructors forward, getting the people interested, but getting the ACEs to support it and get them in here and getting that pipeline full again. We are well on our way. We've still got a little ways to go, but it's it's filling up again. And we'll have that constant movement again. It just, you know, COVID was COVID. It happened. It was a challenge for a lot of people. And, you know, these days with the turnover in the comm centers, instructors are in demand. Courses are in demand. So we have to be able to meet that need. Yeah, exactly. So while we're talking about creating in-house instructors for ACEs, what else should center managers or directors know about this process? Why should they invest in this? The biggest thing that I could tell you is the way you get the best return on investment is to utilize this person all around and think outside of just just them standing up in front of a classroom. I mean, the discipline classes are great and there's some huge advantages there. You can schedule it whenever you want it. It's your own employee that's teaching this stuff. If you don't invite people from other agencies, you could you could do a four-day EMD class. We always talk about, gosh, we cram so much into three days. You know, the agency I came from, we could add a day. And then I could have tons of time to just get through everything. Now, we couldn't invite outside agencies, though, because we're changing the timeframes of the class unless they were on board with it. But that is a huge advantage. You do not have to put the same notice into course coordination as far as how far out you're scheduling there's no minimum student numbers and fees involved you know if you're an ace with your own instructor you get a a nice discount on each registration you know there are some financial incentives where you you can recoup your money eventually but the other side of it too is especially if they're a line dispatcher or close to a line dispatcher they're out on the floor leading by example doing it right answering questions People come to them, you know, they become a mentor, whether they like it or not, they become a mentor. And I think that's important. Not only that, in my agency, we would have one mandatory CDE class a year, one eight-hour CDE day. And our in-house instructor would get two hours of that to do protocol review. If we had somebody that was on a performance improvement plan and it was protocol specific, we would pair them up with our in-house instructor to go over stuff, do review. Our in-house instructors would develop a quick little CDE lesson with 10 quiz questions and you get 0.5 hours of CDE time. We fully utilized our in-house instructors when I was doing it. There's so much that they can do. They know the stuff that's coming out of the academy a lot of times before the rest of the general public. I can't tell you how often my director or different coordinators will be like, hey, can you ask somebody at the academy? Da, 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 da. And I'd be like, oh yeah, sure. And they know that you have that in. Direct, direct line. You know, our relationship was with the instructor directly from my department, not with the agency. So there's a lot of advantages. ACEs, I would say, take full advantage of it. There is an investment to get somebody built out as an instructor, but I do think that you can get a fantastic return on that. Yeah, it just sounds like a really great resource to have. As long as you use them as that resource. Is there anything else that you think people should know, listeners should know about the Instructor Academy? 
up to this point, I've been doing this very long, by the way, but up to this point, anytime somebody has dropped out of an instructor academy or we have not been able to continue them, it's been a mutually agreed upon outcome. And every single time it's the person is too busy with their job or they didn't want to become an instructor, but they had to, or they were pushed, they were voluntold is mm -hmm. what I like to say. And that's great. I mean, if you're an agency that's gung-ho and wants an instructor, by all means, get somebody in here, but find the right person. It's not something where you can come in and then go to your team teaches and you, the only time you pick it up is when you do the team teach, you know, it's just, it's not going to go well. And unfortunately the classes see it, we see it. And that's usually what it comes down to. We have to have that conversation. It's like, do you really want to do this? And they're every single one so far is like, eh, not really. And I'm like, okay, all right, cool. There's the answer. So how can I help you get out of this? Because we both need to make sure that this is going to work for us. And there's a lot of stuff we can do to help them, especially if their agency has made the investment, like maybe offered them a free trip to an instructor academy for their replacement, just so they don't take too much heat. Because it's just as important to realize this is not for me as it is to get the person who absolutely loves it. You know, that's what we want. People that just love this, that have the passion, that stand behind it. Is every single thing the Academy ever put out have I liked? No, but I've been able to have a voice, especially as an instructor, but the whole process, I stand behind it. You know what I mean? There's research behind everything. We make decisions based on that. I just think that we have to find the people that just love this, love this stuff. Yes. And I've taken each of the courses at least twice. And you can tell, you can tell when the instructor's so passionate about what they're doing. And you can tell when they're nervous, but they're still passionate. But then you can also tell when they're like, don't want to be there. And that makes such a huge difference because there is such a problem with retention in this industry. And if their very first interaction with dispatch is an instructor who is not jazzed to be there, that is going to color their entire career unless the people they meet after do some serious work to correct that. That is so true. I mean, you're hitting it right on the head. And I tell them that in our classes, there's a certain point in the class where we talk about some of that, where it's like, please realize that when you get up in front of that room, sometimes it's their first day on the job. They have no idea what they're getting themselves into. And your excitement and your passion for it, it's contagious in its first impression, not just for dispatch, but for the academy too. If you get somebody that's standing in front of the classroom going, well, there's this question. I mean, you have to ask it as scripted, but I don't really like it. I mean, if you start doing, if you have an instructor doing that, you're not setting, I mean, what do you think they're going to do when they get out of there? Well, I don't really like it. You know, it's like, no, even if you don't like it, understand why it's there and tell them. And you just have got to have that excitement because this is a hard job. It's not just hard because of the technical side of it. It is a hard emotional roller coaster. And it's, it's not an easy job. The pay is not great everywhere. You know, there's not a lot of thanks in it. You are behind the scenes, so you don't get the credit that everyone else. It's just, it's not an easy job. It is a very rewarding job, but it's not an easy job. And you're going to have the hard days. I mean, it's like that in any job, but I think that our instructors can really set the tone, just like you said, right from the beginning. And we've been doing it a long time. You know, you find ways to stay passionate and not get too burnt up in the career. It's a great career. It really is. 
when I took the fire course, you were talking about the mental health aspects of dispatch. And he was just kind of being like, it's a hard job. And you're talking to people on the worst day of their life. And he pointed at me. He was like, you tell me something good that happened to you today. And I was really disoriented and I was not quite prepared for it. But he just really, (laughs) he really hammered home the importance of looking for good things in your day. Because if you don't, you're just going to kind of ride on this wave of not negativity, right? Because people are calling for help and that's what the job is. But riding this wave of seeing the worst all the time. And if you're not actively fighting to see good things and to recognize them and to keep those neural pathways healthy and strong, this job is going to be so much harder than it needs to be. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? Unfortunately, cultures are a little bit different everywhere you go in every single communication center or system, but they can be dark places sometimes. And if you don't keep yourself in that mode, nobody else is going to. And you really have to take care of yourself. And a lot of places, your colleagues are really good about that too, but it's not everywhere, not everywhere. You've really got to stay in that that gratitude side of things. And like you said, somebody points you, what could happen to you today? And when you said that, I'm instantly like, well, I woke up. That was a good start, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I woke up this morning <laughs> and I came to work. So I don't know. You're right though. You're hitting it right on the head. I think being in dispatch is a blessing and a curse because you don't have to see the horrific stuff visually, but the curse side of it, sometimes I think it's harder not to see it because then you're just left to your imagination. And sometimes that can be worse than actually seeing it be like, oh, that wasn't so bad, you know? Yeah. And you don't get to hear the resolution a lot of the times, right? So if you're a police officer, if you're an EMT, if you're a firefighter who comes to a scene, you're like, oh, this is bad. This is a really bad situation. But A, you can you can be hands on about it. You can be doing something. And to some extent, you can do that in dispatch, right? You can give instructions, but it feels different when you're there, when you're doing something physically. And then also you do, you get to see the resolution. You see that, you know, they get to go to the hospital. You see that they get up and walk away. Whereas in the dispatch center, not only are you imagining the horrible thing that happened, you imagine the worst case scenario, right? Like, did they die? They probably died. It was probably painful, you know? And you have no idea. And you have no idea. Unless it was a big... A big call that's in the media, then you have no idea. Yeah. And, you know, the paramedics, the police officers, the firefighters, I go back to the hospital day after day after day, and I can check up on people, you know, pop my head into the room and just see how they're doing or how their family's doing. But the dispatchers don't get that. And there is importance to that, getting a little bit of closure. Com centers are doing a lot better about that stuff. I mean, it's definitely being acknowledged now, but... We've got a ways to go with that. Yes, it is work. Also work, finding instructors, bringing it back. You're welcome. Absolutely. Bring them in. I always say, call me. Let's have an actual conversation. Yes. My email is my first name, last name, separated by a period at emergencydispatch.org. And I am always open to having a real conversation about this kind of stuff. And I would I would encourage anybody if you've had an outstanding experience with an instructor or or mediocre or not even a good one that that's stuff we want to hear about. We're constantly doing QA and trying to improve the product we're putting out there on the instructor services side of things. So we want to hear from you. Yeah. Is that your final statement of the podcast? Yes. We want to hear from you. Okay. Call me, email me. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have relevant links and information in the show notes as needed. And if you're listening to this saying, oh, I would like to talk about this experience or I wish you had covered this topic, please email me 
at dispatch in depth at emergencydispatch.org. Eric, thank you so much for being on today. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Dispatch in Depth. Remember, it really helps if you rate and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dispatch in Depth is hosted by me, Becca Barris. I'm also the technical director and producer, and Matthew Maiko is the executive producer. 